0: Find out more at readingthebiblelands.com. This episode of Live the Bible is brought to you by Walking the Bible Lands. If you'd like to see the places of scripture from your computer or device, just head on over to walkingthebiblelands.com. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Stiles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your daily life. In this episode, we look at what it is that's taking God so long in his program. I mean, why didn't Jesus just hurry up and come? In fact, if he came before April 15th, that would be really great. We wait on God for a lot of things, don't we? Well, today, the Apostle Peter reminds us that, in truth, We're not waiting on God as much as God is waiting on us. I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's hear this week's podcast. You may have to think back just a little bit, but do you remember your driver's test? I don't mean the one you took when you were a teenager. I mean the one last week as you were on the road. Just yesterday, Kathy and I were sitting at a stoplight And it's one of those times where you're sitting at the stoplight and you see in the rearview mirror and you think, hmm, I really hope they stop. (laughs) And we were at a stoplight and the turn lane was right next to us. And turns out this truck decided, you know, there's no sense in slowing down when he gets in that turn lane. Anyway, he passed us up and went. And it was all just fine. But I told Kathy, I'm glad the bolts on his tires weren't an inch longer. Because... They st- they stuck out and almost <clears throat> almost sideswiped us. One Another event was a, a little less, or I should say a little more, concerning. One morning, very early morning, I was driving to Louisville, and it was one of the bridges that went over um, the Louisville Lake, I think, something anyway. I didn't really have a great sense of where I was. I only had a great sense of what was happening because... Have you ever seen those monster trucks that get on the road? Maybe you drive one. I don't know. And if you do, I, I don't mean to pigeonhole you, but you shouldn't be driving one. No. But this monster truck came up beside me. And, you know, the wheels, I drive a Toyota Prius, which is not a very intimidating car to begin with, I confess. But I actually you know, was going 70 miles an hour on the highway and looked to my left and this wall which was a tire was coming beside me look over and usually you're used to seeing a car it was just a tire and it's as tall as my car and I thought that is a large vehicle well immediately as soon as its back tire got equal with my hood it lunged into my lane and I slammed my brakes on and somehow we were on a bridge and so there was this you know guardrail off off to the side slam my brakes on. I don't know how he didn't hit me or I didn't hit the guardrail, but it was one of, those, uh, one of those moments where I thought, you know, I almost, if he had sideswiped me, I would have looked like evil Knievel going off the Snake River there <laughs> off this bridge. It was terrifying. And after my heart rate returned to normal and my stomach left my throat and got back down to where it belongs, I thought, you know, these kind of tri- driving tests are never announced. You don't wake up that morning and have a, a note taped to your dashboard saying, you know, you want to really be paying attention this morning because uh, your, your driving is about to be tested. No, and these are much like the tests that God gives us. You don't wake up in the morning and go in to brush your teeth and there's a note taped on the mirror and say, you know what, today's going to be really rough on your patients. You want to be prepared for that. God's tests are pop quizzes. We never see them coming. Most of the time, God issues tests that come as sucker punches to our pride, followed by a spinning Bruce Lee kick um, to our hypocrisy. We never see them coming because they hit our blind side. When God drops a pop quiz in our lap, it's like catching a live grenade. You've got about a second and a half to decide how you're going to respond. And in truth, often, here's the deal. We realize that we have already chosen our response to trials by the preparation we've given prior to them. We don't prepare for the trial at the trial. We prepare for trials before the trial, before the test. And a lot of times in these we are humbled by what the tests reveal, if, just to be flat honest with you. When we are tested, we are often humbled because we are not the people we think we are. And then sometimes we're surprised that we're not the people we thought we were, that we respond much better, not just always worse. The good news also is that we are not the people that God will help us become. Well, let's, in that vein, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, because becoming the people whom God Wants us to become is all part of God's plan, and it is what Peter has been laboring to teach us, really through 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but especially as we've had the last some weeks in 2 Peter. The suffering in our lives, the testing and trials in our lives are to prove what is true in our lives that is, that we are strong and that we are following Christ. Peter has so far in Second Peter really emphasized by his own words to say a reminder that his passion has been to remind us. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. It's not enough to know it, but to be reminded of the same things over and over. And especially he gives a great emphasis on the Bible and the Bible's personal place or place of prominence in our spiritual life. And he ends chapter one by just holding up the word of God and saying that it comes from God, it doesn't come from man, and we would do well to pay attention to it. Especially in light of all of chapter two, which we looked at, that focused on the false teachers. Because we live in a world that doesn't hold to the word of God. In fact, we'll flat out contradict God's word. And if we aren't comfortable with what God's word teaches us, then we're going to be in a pickle when someone comes and contradicts it, because we won't we will we'll be uncertain as uh, as to how we're to respond. So when we get to chapter three now, we're going to see a little bit of repetition, which makes sense if Peter is reminding us of what he of his theme. So let's look together, Second Peter three, starting in verse one. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the, of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter clearly, in these two verses, he tells us twice is urging us to remember, and, to do, and in order for that to happen, he's giving us some reminders. And once again, he points us to the place that we need to go if we're going to be reminded of the essentials. He says, the words spoken beforehand by the Holy Prophets, that is, the Old Testament, that you should remember the words spoken by the, the Holy Prophets as well as the commandment of the Lord and Savior, of Jesus, spoken by the apostles, and so that's a reference to the New Testament. So basically, Peter is saying, pay attention to the Word of God, not just the new and the, the greatest, the, the new gospel message that you've come to be familiar with, but also to the holy prophets of old, because they pointed to it. The Bible is a unified whole, and Peter says that it, 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 it's, uh, it's essential that we stir up our mind to remember these words of the Bible. Once again, he reminds us why. Look at verse 3. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In the last days, Peter says, sometimes People will come up to me and ask, you know, are we in the last days? Or do you think we're in the last days? Or soon will we be in the last days? And in truth, we've been in the last days since the first century. And and ironically, it's Peter's own words that told us that. If you look at his great speech in uh, Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter tells us that in the last days, XYZ will happen. And he is speaking. Uh, In the present tense, he's speaking of what what was true at that time. So we've been in the last days for a couple thousand years now. The last days are a reference to the time of Jesus, not just, you know, prophecy in the future. So when when Peter says that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, he's saying, as he did in chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you it was true then it's still true now the last days still have these mockers and then he gives a specific example of of their mocking um a question where is the promise of his coming and you can you can see the skeptics even of our age asking that question and if it's not that question it's another question but it points to the promise you could you could underline that, where is the promise of, and then just fill in the blank. Whether it's his coming, it is is his forgiveness of his provision. You can fill in the blank with whatever it is God has promised, and yet the circumstances seem to demand that he hasn't kept his promise. The skeptics will pounce on that, and they will hold that up to you and say, you know, if God is real, if the Bible is true, then how come this isn't happening according to the timeline where it should be happening? But the reality is, the timeline is their timeline. It's not necessarily God's timeline. And we have to remember that in our own mind and heart, because we typically have a timeline with a whole lot shorter than God's. Have you ever noticed God's timeline is a whole lot longer than yours? I can't think of any time uh, in my life where something has happened too fast. Usually it's too slow, unless, you know, it's something fun that's happening. That always happens too fast. Are we in the last days? Absolutely, we're in the last days. I remember reading a Hollywood actor whose name you would know if I mentioned it. He said at a party, he said, there is no God and I can prove it. And he stood up and he yelled, if there's a God in heaven, may he strike me with a bolt of lightning. And of course, nothing happens. And he said, see, there's no God. And it's a great example of, the, of this type of mocker that we hold out a standard and say, I expect God to meet this standard or to do X, Y, Z. And if he doesn't, look, I'm giving him a chance to prove himself. Here you go, Lord. If you're real, make it happen. And when God doesn't dance to that tune, we write God off. This isn't new. Jesus' brothers did a very similar thing to Jesus. Remember, there was a feast that Jesus said to his brothers, you guys go on up. I'm not going to come just yet. And they said, you know, if you're trying to be popular, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if you're trying to be popular, if you're trying to be be a public figure, don't do it up here in Galilee. Go down to Jerusalem. That's where all the public figures do their thing. And Jesus told his brothers, He said, For you, any time is opportune, but my time has not yet come. In other words, Jesus says, Now's not the time. For you, any time's good. Now, the sooner the better. But Christ said, My time has not yet come. Similar thing happened with his very first miracle. Remember, they ran out of wine at the wedding, and Mary comes to him and says, They're out of wine. Implication, It's time to get this kingdom thing rolling. Mary knew her Bible. She knew that the Messiah, all the way back to Genesis 49, talks about the abundance of wine and blessing that was going to happen when the Messiah comes. Well, Jesus told Mary as well, my time has not yet come. So we want God to act immediately, and you see this a number of times in Jesus' life, but the reality is he's got his own timeline, and it's according to wisdom, not according to... To us. I remember way back in, seems way back, I guess from my perspective it's not that far ago, but back in 2003 when the United States attacked Iraq, um, the next morning there was a news conference to talk about this, and Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, was asked by a reporter about the, quote, apparent failure to follow the war plan. Rumsfeld replied, he, he said, I don't believe you have the war plan. I thought, well, that's just what we do with the Lord, isn't it? We'll tell God why he's not following the plan, kind of like, you know, Job told God. And like God told Job, God tells us, I don't believe you have the plan. I've got the plan. And if I were to share the plan with you, like the Lord told Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it. So... Our challenge, even as Christians, we struggle with this. In a fallen world, it's real easy to feel like the wheels are coming off when we look at what's happening when when our Supreme Court votes on something that is completely immoral, or when there'll be a new law that's passed that allows X, Y, Z to happen, and the Bible clearly speaks against that. It looks like the wheels are coming off. No, things things are rocking along right according to God's plan. That doesn't mean God agrees with it all. But it, but, it doesn't, but what happens doesn't necessarily mean that God's out of control. Well, it doesn't mean that He's out of control. We've seen many times throughout history, many times throughout Scripture, that uh, uh, those things occur to test us. Are we going to trust the Lord as opposed to deciding, like the mockers, where's the promise of His coming? He's not here now in my lifetime, so He must not be coming. Well, who says he's coming in in our lifetime? Maybe he's not. Well, Peter gives a good uh, response to this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So already in these first seven verses, Peter keeps pointing us back to God's word. I'm writing you this that you remember the prophets. I'm writing you this that you remember the words of the holy apostles. Because the mockers evidently have forgotten they it escapes their notice that by, verse 5, the word of God this happened. And then verse 7, by his word, the present heavens. So the, the earth, uh, by God's word, was destroyed initially, and the present earth, by God's word, Peter says, will be destroyed, not by water in the future, but by fire. Everything hasn't continued the same since the day of creation. This is what the mockers said there in verse 4. It's almost sort of a deistic mindset. You know, a deist believes that God created the world and then just kind of sits back in his easy chair and just watches as everything happens, and in some sense kind of wrings his hands like, oh no, what have I done, but doesn't get involved. Peter's saying God's very much been involved, and he gives one example of the flood. Of course, in chapter 2, he gave a number of examples. He talked about angels. He talked about the flood. He talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. He talked about Lot, Noah. Uh, God's been very involved throughout history. He doesn't just observe it, but he, he created it, and then he guides it along and gives it adjustments according to his sovereign plan as thing goes along, as time goes along. Keep your finger there in Second uh, Peter 3 and turn back to 1 Peter 3. Peter mentions this and gives us a nice pivot into where we're about to go first Peter 3 verse uh, it's hard to say where to start let's talk let's start in verse 20 it's talking about Jesus but we'll just start in verse 20 that Jesus preached verse 20 to those who were once obedient when the patience of God, kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Notice Peter says the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. This gives us an insight to where we're going now back in Second Peter chapter 3. God's patience waiting during the building of the ark is an illustration of what's happening now. There's a judgment that that occurred in the past, and God's patience waited, and then all of a sudden, boom, it happened. That's an illustration of what's happening now. God's patience is waiting, and there's a coming judgment, and all of a sudden, boom, it's going to happen. Let's look at verse 8, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. Peter writes, "...but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved." That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is what Peter said back in 1 Peter 3, same thing he says in 2 Peter 3, that God's patient Waiting before the flood is an illustration of his current waiting before the next coming judgment, that he is giving a space of grace to allow repentance. The mocker looks at God's delay and says, God doesn't care, God is apathetic, or he is absent, or he may even be unable to do anything, because clearly he isn't. Peter says, uh-uh, that's not at all why God doesn't seem to be involved. He is not involved, by as you define involvement, not because he is unable, but because he is patient. doesn't want anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Peter paraphrases Psalm 90. We won't turn to Psalm 90, but it's this, this famous word here in verse 8 that with the Lord... A day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Don't misunderstand what that means. It doesn't mean that time doesn't matter to God or that a day is a thousand years, some sort of metaphor of eternity. It's, notice it is, it's a simile. It's a metaphor. It one day is like, it doesn't say is, but is like a thousand years. He's using that as a comparison to show the extent of God's patience. God is as patient uh, in, a, in a thousand years as you and I, for example, are in a day. God is that patient. And that's where, why he goes into the very next verse to describe the patience of God. We're not talking about literal time, we're talking about literal patience, the incredible patience of God, waiting until someone would repent. When you see a flaw in somebody, how do you respond? And I ask this because this is a great place to ask it with regard to these mockers. It's real easy, and I'll speak for myself. When I read the news uh, each morning over my cereal, I read the news and I look at uh, a world that seems like the wheels are coming off. And people say things that are so wrong about God and wrong about His Word, disrespectful to any, any everybody from our president to, uh, you know, Hollywood actors. And when we see that, not only in the news, but also around people that we rub shoulders with. In fact, we don't even have to get outside this room. Forget Hollywood. Forget the news. Just look across the aisle at all the fellow sinners in here with you. How do you respond when you see someone's flaws because you see them? I'm sure that my flaws are as obvious to you as your flaws are to me. Hey everybody, Wayne here. This podcast has been going for months now, and if you've not left a review, you know, your review could really help other busy people benefit from this content. That's because one of the main ways that new listeners find the Live the Bible podcast is through listener reviews. So would you take just a couple of minutes right now to leave a review? You can do so at waynestyles.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. And now, back to the message. How do you respond when you see someone's flaws? Because you see them. I'm sure that my flaws are as obvious to you as your flaws are to me. And they're obvious (laughs) as mine are to you. Well, the point is, what do you do with that? Remember back in Genesis 18 or 19 when God told Abraham, he said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And then he goes on to say, Sodom and Gomorrah is really bad, and I'm going to go down and see if it's that bad. And if it's that bad, I'm going to deal with it. What does Abraham do? Abraham immediately goes to the Lord in prayer. says, well, you wouldn't destroy the righteous along with the wicked, or the wicked along with the righteous, would you? What if there's 50 people? What if there's 40 people? What if there's 30 people? You know, it gets it down to 10. What if there's 10 people? Will you be merciful? And all of that is a great principle to say, God took the initiative there with Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, I want to let you know. I want to show you give you a, a, a little window into how wicked Sodom and Gomorrah is. Why? Not so Abraham can go, yeah, go get them, God. But Abraham, what was his response? God, have mercy. Please be merciful. I am convinced that is a principle. That's not just something that we see in Abraham. That's a principle for our lives. When God shows you in the news, in the class, wherever he shows you uh, someone's flaws, And sometimes he'll give us a window into the truth, doesn't he? It's not so we can sit there and smugly think how great we are and how bad they are. But it is like Abraham, so that we can have compassion. Rather than shake our head, bow our head and pray. Say, Lord, please be merciful, just as you were in my life, just as you are in my life. Be merciful. You've shown me a flaw in this person. Not so that I can feel better about myself, but so that I can pray. This is the kind of compassion we see in our Lord, mirrored here in 2 Peter 3, 9. God is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We need to have that same attitude, that we need not be willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And when God shows you somebody's need for repentance. That revelation has been given to you and to me, not so that we can feel better about ourselves, but so that we can be moved with compassion to pray that, they may, that their eyes may be opened and to see the flaw that's apparently hidden. Uh, okay, keep your finger here. Let's do a couple more little flips. Look back to Genesis chapter 15. This is a principle. It's not a New Testament principle. Genesis 15, we see it very, very, very clearly. Genesis 15, look at verse 15, 15, 15, The Lord's talking to Abraham, reiterating the great covenant or promise that God gave to Abraham, and he adds on to it a little more revelation that Abraham didn't know about back in chapter 12 when it was first given. Genesis fifteen fifteen, the Lord tells Abraham, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. He's talking about Abraham's descendants that will be oppressed in a foreign land. This is the verses just prior to this, meaning Egypt. Your descendants, Abraham, will go to Egypt. They'll be there for a number of generations, and then they will come back. But The Lord says one of the reasons that there's going to be a delay is because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete, that God cared about the Canaanites, and that God was giving a space of grace, a time of patience for the Canaanites to repent before God brought Joshua in there to wipe them out. And even when God brought Joshua in there, there were miracles that occurred beforehand that that the news went ahead that there were some Canaanites, like Rahab, that said, whoa, I repent. I want to follow this God. So, God gave a space of grace even back then. He's done this all along through history, and it's what He's doing now. The reason that God has not gotten involved and in taken His thumb and just squashed all the evil people in the world is because He wants all of them, like He did for us, to repent and to come to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Flip forward now to Romans chapter 2. Let's look at another verse. Romans chapter 2. Romans 2, starting in verse 4. Romans 2, 4. Paul writes, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul is writing a great principle here that says that God's patience displays his kindness. And God's kindness toward you and toward me gives us room to repent. In history, God has shown extreme self-restraint at the evils of Hitler, of Stalin, of Hussein, and often you and me, hasn't he? Incredible restraint. But the most restraint I think that he has shown would be at the unfair, unjust crucifixion of his innocent son, Jesus, that when God the Father didn't release the myriad of angels like Jesus said that he could have done there in Gethsemane. You remember Jesus, Peter pulls the sword and slices off that servant's ear, and Jesus says, hold it, Peter, don't you think that I could, I could uh, how many legions, 12? No, six, in a bunch. So like like 72,000 angels, 12,000, six, six legions, I don't remember, I wish I did. But anyway, seven, I think it was like 72,000 angels total that I could have at my disposal like that, that the Father would give me? Incredible restraint. Why? Jesus said so that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. And now as a result of the most unjust act of history, the most gracious act of history now resulted that we can place our faith in Jesus Christ. Tolkien once wrote, "...no man can estimate what's really happening at the present." All we do know, and that to a large extent by direct experience, is that evil labors with vast power and perpetual success in vain, preparing always only the soil for unexpected good to sprout in. See, God's not powerless against evil at all. He's simply patient, and he is tolerating it for a greater good, that is, that people might come to repentance. Millions and millions in the last uh, decade, I believe, I'm trying to remember the source, I wish I had it at my fingertips, um, of Muslims have come to Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons that God patiently waits and tolerates, is because at the same time that evil occurs in our world, there are millions of people coming to know Jesus Christ who will not face a Christless eternity. We'll turn back to Second Peter. Let's continue in verse eleven. Second Peter three eleven. We're just going to borrow a verse from next time and uh, try to wrap it up here, because this isn't just about all the evil people out there. Look how Peter responds or applies this. Uh, well, let's actually let's start with verse ten. Peter writes, "The day of the Lord will come like a thief." in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. We'll talk more about that next time. But look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You see, God's not just waiting on the sinner to repent. To come to know Jesus Christ, He's also waiting on us. Think about it. As Creator, God made the first move. If you think about that, that's unequivocally true. God took the initiative; He created us, and we, as creatures, responded by by disobeying. Then God took the initiative to provide a means of. Forgiveness, we as creatures responded to that and believed. All throughout the scriptures, you see that we love because he first loved us. Jesus said, I did not, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit and fruit that remains. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And even when we come to him, we come to him because he first said, as he did in the Psalms, seek my face. Even when we come to Him, it's at His invitation. God is the one that takes the initiative, and we respond to Him. He waits on us. That's my point. We think we're waiting on God. The reality is He's waiting on us. We're waiting on Him, yes, but He is also waiting on us. He is waiting on us, not just for the world to repent, but He's waiting on you and me. Peter says, we know this is how the world is going to be destroyed. We know we're going to be in a safe place what sort of people should we be if we know all this is true in holy conduct and godliness? Some months ago, I noticed that the maintenance light on my car dashboard came on. And whenever it says, you know, check engine or I forget what it says. It doesn't say change the oil in my Prius. It says, you know, check engine, which means change the oil. It's funny, when it, when that first happened, I called the place and says, what does it mean, check engine? Oh, it means change your oil. Oh, okay, well, so change the oil. So. But that came on, and I thought, oh, it just means change the oil and the filter. I so, eh, you can wait on that, right? I mean, there's always one more day. You can always squeak one more day out of an oil change. You can. I mean, you can. And time went on and on. Finally, I got it done. It's no big deal. But then there's the morning, and I walk out and my car has a flat tire. I can't go, you know, I'll take care of that next week. No, the world stops, doesn't it? And you have to take care of that tire, because you ain't going anywhere. A, a car doesn't roll with a flat. It can roll with, uh, without an oil change, but it can't roll with a flat. And as I try to do a lot of times, I think, how does that relate to our Christian life? And you know what it does? Because our lives are like filters and flats, aren't they? Mostly like filters. Mostly like filters. There's always one more day we can put it off. Always one more day we can put off making the decision we need to, as opposed to the times that God graciously gives us flat tires in life. Flat tires are often God's grace because he basically says, you know what, I'm drawing a line right here. You're going to deal with this. I'm not going to let you roll one more mile until you deal with this. But most often, in his great patience, we don't get flats. We just get the, the, the light on the dashboard that says, check engine, and we ignore it. Think, ah, yeah, I'll do that. Yep, I'll do that. The reality is uh, it often takes a flat tire. I like how Joe Dallas puts it. He writes, God gives you room to take care of the problem, before the problem overwhelms you. If you've been given space to repent, you'll do one of two things. You'll either use it wisely by taking action while you can, or you'll make the common mistake of mistaking space for repentance as permission to continue. With that in mind, let me toss you and me a few questions. And I've written them down, and I've worded them very carefully. So just listen. You're welcome to zip your Bible up now if you'd like. Make all the zipping sounds you'd like. And just listen to these questions very carefully. Is there some specific area where Jesus has been knocking at the door, but you keep it deadbolted? Is there something God is asking you to release to him that you're refusing to let go of? Some act of obedience or trusting God seems to be too much to ask. Some dream or desire that's so strong it overshadows what might be God's desire for you. Are you afraid that God's will may not be your will? Or that somehow what He wants for you pales in comparison for what you want? Just think of one warning light you see now in your life that maybe you've habitually ignored. Imagine now how you would feel if the worst possible news occurred in that area. Think of the fallout that would follow. Think of some specifics. How would you feel if that happened? One truth we would all feel is if we failed in this particular way or if we had a flat in that particular area, we would give anything to go back and to change that filter. Through the gift of perspective, we have been given that opportunity, haven't we? That God's warnings comes because he loves us and he is patient with us, wanting us to come to repentance. Well, it's 12 o'clock. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you, like a father, urge us to walk in obedience, not because you demand control as much as you long for our success. You want to see us succeed. You want to see us walk the Christian life in a way that honors you and is a blessing to us and others. Thank you that you don't stand like a parent with arms folded, glaring at us, but instead you stand with arms outstretched, waiting to embrace us. Thank you that this gap of time that we're in reflects your grace, a grace to a world that desperately needs Jesus Christ. And help our reaction to be, as we live in and among the world, rather than self righteous condemnation to have compassion and toward not just the world but toward those around us as well in our own hearts would you give us that that spur that that emphasis that encouragement of grace to come to you and to quit ignoring the warning light and to um, to ask you what it takes for the step of change Father, help us to consider the joy we would have if we surrender the life we want and instead embrace the life that you want to give us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible. Our God is so gracious, isn't he? He waits and he waits and he waits for us because he loves us so much. All of the time that God has given us is not permission to continue walking in rebellion, but it's time given to us by His grace that we may turn and follow Him more closely. Let's do that this week, shall we? Next week, we complete the book of 2 Peter with some great insight from the Apostle on how to keep growing in our walk with God the rest of our lives. We're calling the message, Growing, Growing, Gone. (laughs) That's next. Until then... Live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.